Well, friends, we today are concluding a brief two-sermon series in the prophetic book of Obadiah. We've been spending time as a church this summer in the minor prophets, so-called, just the some of the shorter prophetic books. We spent five weeks in Jonah, three weeks in Habakkuk, and now two in Obadiah. It's remarkable the themes that come up over and over again in the prophetic literature. I trust you've seen some of this this summer as we've thought through these three prophets in particular. How many times have we seen the realities of suffering and pain and hardship, people hurting other people, How often have we seen the realities of injustice in this world and then the people of God asking, Lord, do you see? Do you know what's going on? Are you going to do anything about this? All of the injustice, all of the suffering, all of the pain, yes, they're commonplace in this life, but they're difficult for us to process. They're difficult for us to understand often. And then when we consider that God's own people are not exempt from any of this. God's own people experience all of these things in life that, if possible, can make it even harder to understand. The Lord has revealed himself to be good, merciful, gracious, to be a God of steadfast love who abounds in faithfulness. He is just, righteous, pure, holy. And yet, his own people experience injustice, suffer, endure pain, are hurt by other people, sometimes oppressed by other people, at times in the history of the world killed by other people. Does God see? Does he care? Will he do anything about it? If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Obadiah. We're going to be looking today at the last seven verses, beginning in verse 15 through the end of the book, verse 21. As you're taking a few moments, perhaps, to turn to Obadiah 15 and following, let me make a few comments by way of overview, just to help you orient yourself here. And if you weren't here last week, this may serve you well, just to kind of catch you up on the things that we considered together a week ago today. Obadiah's vision, the message that he received from the Lord, we learn early on is addressed to a nation called Edom. And as we considered last week, the nation of Edom descended from a man named Esau, who was Jacob's twin brother. Genesis 25 and verse 23, the Lord says to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, the mother of the twins, these words, two nations are in your womb, And two peoples from within you shall be divided. He's talking there about the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, who would descend from these two men. The relationship between the brothers, Jacob and Esau, was rocky while they were on earth, culminating in some trickery and deceit on Jacob's part that then led Esau to say, I want to kill my brother. Jacob had to flee town for about 20 years, And finally returned, the brothers were reconciled, but moving forward, the relationship between the two nations, Israel and Edom, was fraught with tension. We read last week from Numbers chapter 20, where Israel under Moses was 
making its way to the promised land. They had just come out of Egypt. They'd been wandering in the wilderness. They're on their way to Canaan. And they sought passage through the land of Edom. But Edom, for its part, refused Israel that passage. No, you can't come through here. To which Israel, through Moses, respond, like, we won't, we won't drink anything, we won't eat anything, we won't mess anything up, we'll stay on the road, can we please come through? To which the Edomites said, no, you will not, and even threatened Israel and came out, assembled in military formation, just to make sure that the message was clear. We read repeatedly on the pages of the Old Testament that Edom is listed as a an enemy, excuse me, of the nation of Israel. There were a number of times under Saul, under David, under Amaziah, where Israel or Judah went out to war against the nation of Edom. So that's just to give you some context in terms of the relationship that exists between these two peoples. Last week in verses 1 to 14, we saw how the Lord was summoning, quite literally recruiting the nations to rise up in battle against Edom. The Lord indicts Edom for their pride as a nation and expresses his own resolve to humiliate them. Edom will face judgment at the hands of other nations and the Lord indicates that the destruction and the pillaging of Edom will be total. And then the Lord lays out his particular case against Edom. What has really brought this to the fore? And it's because Edom has been especially cruel to God's people, Judah. We consider that the historical context is the aftermath of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And then, of course, the subsequent pillaging and deportation of the people of Judah. And instead of coming to Judah's aid in all of this, which is what Edom should have done, being closely related to them, Edom instead at times stood by aloof, just idly by and allowed things to happen, and even worse at times, aligned themselves with the Babylonian invaders, even taking part in the pillaging, gloating over Judah's ruin. We read in the last verse that we considered last week, verse 14, that Edom even cut off and handed over the people of Judah who were trying to flee. We made a significant observation last week, and I'm going to go ahead and make it now on the front end of our time together. It bears repeating. As I've said, Obadiah's vision, his message is concerning Edom. It is addressed to Edom. Unusual. Right? That a prophetic book would be addressed to another nation. The Lord lays out his case against Edom. He makes clear the judgment that will come upon Edom as a result of all of this. But, like we thought about last week, the prophecy, as much as it concerns Edom, was given to God's covenant people as Holy Scripture. Why does that matter? It's because the purpose of this prophecy, the purpose of this vision, was not so much to warn Edom of imminent judgment. That's a purpose. But the greater purpose is to reassure God's own people of his justice at work for them, to reassure them of his fatherly protection over them, and to remind them and assure them of his eternal plan to redeem them. 
He does see. He does know. He will act. That's the message. This matters for us today, just like it mattered for the people of Judah in the 6th century B.C. So with all of that by way of introduction, let's look to the text together. Beginning in verse 15 of Obadiah. This is the word of God. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I want to spend the first portion of our message today walking verse by verse through the text. So we're going to be looking at the text a lot. We're going to consider what's there and seek to understand it. Afterward, I have two additional points for our consideration. The first one is briefer. The second one is longer, just to prepare you for that. So let's, first of all, look at the text and make our way verse by verse through it. Beginning in verse 15. We see there that the Lord, having laid out his case against Edom, states that the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. The day of the Lord brings judgment against God's enemies, and it brings blessing and salvation to God's people. Now the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used in Scripture a couple of different ways. On the one hand, it points to historical events of judgment and salvation. And, alongside that, it is used to point ultimately to the eschatological day of the Lord. The culmination of all things. The end of history. The final judgment of God's enemies. The final salvation of God's people. Where Jesus returns to judge the world in righteousness. To make all things right. To make all things new. To finally save and gather his own. So the day of the Lord is used in both those ways. The judgment that the Lord will bring upon Edom is now set against the backdrop of the Lord's judgment of all nations. There will be a reckoning. Edom will face the judgment of God. They will be conquered and plundered and cease to exist as a nation. And that is just a drop in the bucket 
compared to the eschatological judgment of God against all of his enemies. The final judgment of the Lord. Notice in the second part of the verse, notice the retributive justice that the Lord will pour out on Edom and on the nations. You can see this. We get worked up about fairness all the time. We should take verses like this to heart. Look what the Lord says. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In other words, the punishment is appropriate. It's deserved. You do, in fact, reap what you sow. With the measure you use, it will, in fact, be measured to you. Verse 16. Now, there's an irony in this verse. Sort of a double meaning. Reading how Edom has drunk on the holy mountain of God, that's meant on the one hand in a literal sense. How were military conquests celebrated? Oftentimes with victory parties and things. But the Lord is pointing ultimately to something else. He's not ultimately talking about the drinking of wine in celebration or of any kind of alcohol for that matter. He is talking about drinking from the cup of his wrath as is described in multiple places in the scriptures. Jeremiah 49, Isaiah 51, Revelation 14. Various places the Lord makes plain. He uses this imagery that the nations will drink, his enemies will drink from the cup of his wrath and they will drain it to the dregs. Edom and the nations, all of whom are God's enemies, will drink of the cup of his wrath. They will drink continually. They will drink and swallow. And this drinking from the cup of God's wrath will result in the nations being, quote, as though they had never been, close quote. Does the Lord see? Does he know? Will he act? Yes. Verse 17. Mount Zion now comes up couple of things we can say about Mount Zion. It is a way that the Lord refers to his holy city, Jerusalem, on the one hand, in the scriptures, where his presence uniquely dwelt in the old covenant era. That's true. And in the scriptures, Mount Zion has redemptive connotations. It is not merely a geographical location. It's not simply the mountain of the Lord or the temple mount or the city of Jerusalem. It is the place, the place of God's salvific presence. We read in verse 17, all of this judgment on Edom, all of this judgment on the nations. But in Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it shall be holy. set apart, cleansed, purified. And the house of Jacob, here the people of God, will possess their own possessions. They will once again have their land, their place to dwell. The land that God had promised them. Put a pin in that, in your mind. Verse 18. The house of Jacob so here we're thinking Judah, the southern kingdom, shall be a fire. 
says the prophet. The house of Joseph, so here Ephraim, the northern kingdom, shall be a flame to all of God's people. And Edom, for its part, will be stubble. And Edom will burn through and on account of God's people. Edom will burn because of what they have done in particular to God's people. And there will be no survivors for the house of Esau because the Lord has spoken. He will do this. Hear the words of the prophet Ezekiel from Ezekiel 25. Thus says the Lord God. Again, does he see? Does he know? Will he act? Yes. Because Edom has acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast. And I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. As we transition to verses 19 and 20, there's a, there's a pivot here. Consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah from Lamentations 4. In Lamentations 4.22, we read this. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish He will uncover your sins. Edom would face its punishment. But as for the Lord's people, their punishment one day would have been accomplished and the Lord would bring them back from exile. He would bring them back into their land. Keep that in mind. In verses 19 and 20, we've got a lot of geographical stuff going on. A lot of places and regions are named. What's the point of verses 19 and 20? It's this. It's that God's exiled people, people who had been deported out of their own land at the hand of foreign enemies, they would return to occupy the land that the Lord had given them. But that's not all. They would come back to the land, but the borders of the land would actually be expanded. Exiles in the Negev will possess Mount Esau in the south. Exiles in Shephelah will possess the land of the Philistines in the west. Exiles shall possess the land of Ephraim and Samaria in the north. Exiles of Benjamin will possess Gilead in the east. And then this, exiles of the host of Israel will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. That is even further than the borders had ever extended, even under David and Solomon. Exiles of Jerusalem shall possess the cities of the Negev even further south than the borders had ever extended under David or Solomon. It's very interesting, right? They'll come back to inhabit a land that's expanded. Verse 21. Then we read that saviors, think deliverers, will go up to Mount Zion to rule or to judge Mount Esau. The Lord would appoint deliverers for his people. This is very similar. Like if you read this language, very similar to what the Lord did in the time of the judges. You remember how that book goes. God's people would be in great distress. 
albeit because of their own sin, but they would cry out to the Lord because they were oppressed by some foreign people. The Lord would raise up a judge, a redeemer, a savior for them to then bring about peace and stability. This is like 2 Kings 13 under Jehoahaz, where we read, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. These words here in verse 21, they serve to remind God's people that just as it had been true in the past, it would be true in the future, that the Lord has in his hand redeemers, judges, saviors, ministers who would bring peace and security to the land. And then we read, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I was going to say this now because it's where we're going. Obadiah is not talking merely about a temporal kingdom. That's going to become even more plain. I'm going to explain that in more depth here in a moment. Yes, the Lord established a temporal, earthly kingdom in Israel. And that kingdom was his. Amen. But the prophet is making an even greater and a different point here. He is describing the kingdom of God from an eternal and redemptive perspective. And we're going to think about that more in the time that we have left. So now on to the first of two points for our further consideration. Number one, the justice of God is a comfort to his people. Or you could put it this way. The justice of God is a comfort to the people of God. Now right out of the gate, that assumes something. That assumes for the justice of God to be a comfort to the people of God means that the people of God are no longer subject to the justice of God. Amen? Has to be the case. Because if we were still subject to the justice of God, it could in no way be a comfort to us. Because we too would face it. Because the justice we deserve has been taken by another, we now can rejoice in and hope in the justice of God being administered. Just say that from the outset. I trust your mind is there, but let it be there. Again, ask yourself the question, does God see what his people go through? Does God know what his people go through? Does God care? Even in this context, oppression, deportation, conquering, pillaging at the hand of foreign armies, does he care? Will he act? Psalm 137 and verse 7 reads this way. The psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Lord, remember what Edom did. Remember how they, regarding the holy city, said, level it. Obadiah makes quite clear that the Lord did, in fact, remember that. And you know this, when the Lord remembers something, it's not just a cognitive exercise for him. When he remembers something that has everything to do with him acting upon his own faithfulness and the promises that he's made for his people's benefit. This is a comfort to the saints. Romans 12 and verse 19 
citing Deuteronomy 32.35. Paul writes there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to him, and he will avenge. He has said so. He will repay. He has said so. This too is a comfort to the saints. You see, we, we gather like this. We're people who believe not in the Lord Jesus Christ for this life only. We believe that he is returning. When we partake of this supper every week, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. He is coming back. May we live with that in view. He's coming back and he will judge the world in righteousness. Based upon principles of righteousness, he will execute judgment. Justice will flow like the waters one day. He will make all things right and he will make all things new. Now you may be sitting there if you're anything like me, or if you're like a number of people that I've spoken with in my life, and you're like, bro, how can he do all that? How can he right every wrong that's ever been committed? To which we say, as we often do, he is God and we are not. His ways are greater than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And there are countless things, beloved, recorded on the pages of this book that we wouldn't believe if we were told. He will execute perfect justice. You need to own this. I need to own this. Unjust suffering is a part of life in this cursed world. Now on the one hand, all suffering is a result of sin. All suffering is a result of the fall. We can rightly look in the mirror and say, why is this like it is? We have done this to ourselves. That's true. And there is still such a thing as unjust suffering in this cursed world. Happens all the time. Where it's not literal cause and effect, one-to-one correlation. This happened, so this happened. It doesn't work like that. We, I think, We struggle with unjust suffering on a number of levels for a number of reasons. It is difficult to process and understand. It's hard to go through. But we ought never be surprised when we see unjust suffering and injustice in this world. One of the reasons that we're often surprised by it is because we have too small of an understanding of the effects of the fall. The effects of the curse are far greater than we ever care to admit. But here's the hope in the whole thing. Justice will be administered by the judge of all the universe who always does what's right. There will not always be unjust suffering. Can you imagine that? I can't. I can't comprehend it. And in fact, there will come a day when there will be no injustice, no suffering whatsoever. Again, I can't comprehend it. Yet the Lord says it is so. May we have faith 
even as we await that day, beloved, know this. Because right now, we suffer. Right now, there's affliction. Know this. Even as we wait and hope for things unseen, God is not unaware. He's not unaware of suffering in general, and He is not unaware of unjust suffering in a particular way. You've probably heard this said before, but it's good for us to be reminded of. Has there ever been a person who did not deserve to suffer? In terms of a human being, the answer to that is there's only one. All of us, because of our corruption, all of us, because of our sin, deserve to suffer. But there was a perfect one who did not deserve to suffer in any capacity. Yet he is the one who willingly suffered unjustly so that he might save his people and bring them to glory. In other words, beloved, the Lord Jesus knows. He understands unjust suffering more than anyone else ever has or ever will. So let that be a comfort to you as you live life in this fallen world, as you observe hard things, as you go through hard things. Consider your Savior. And then ask yourself this question. When it comes to the end of it all, and how justice will be administered, who is a more fitting judge? Who is a more fitting judge to administer justice than this person? Who is the only person to ever suffer unjustly? We marvel at the plan of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us, though, to our second point. Not only is the justice of God a comfort for the people of God, there is an even greater comfort and hope that we can talk about. And it's this. The Lord is establishing an everlasting kingdom in Christ. The Lord is establishing an everlasting kingdom in Christ. Again, I point you to verses 19 through 21 of Obadiah. What are they about? Two horizons here. Read it on the page. The Lord says He'll gather His people. Alright, got it. He'll restore them from exile. Alright, got it. He'll establish them and expand their land. Okay, that's plain enough. We can understand that. In other words, their condition will be better than it was before. Alright, we got that. The Lord says saviors, redeemers, will go up to Zion, to the city of God, to rule and judge Edom, to bring peace and justice to the land. Got that. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Okay. Now, I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table again. And we're going to deep dive here. All of this, all of this language, verses 19 to 21, necessarily points to Christ and His kingdom that would be established in the church and then finally in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll say that again. All of this necessarily points to Christ and His kingdom that would be established in the church and then finally in the new heavens and the new earth. Why do I say that? Textually, why? Reason with me. God said that he would bring his people out of exile. He did do that. He brought Judah out of exile from Babylon back to the land. The Lord said they're going to live in their land again. They're going to have their possessions again. They would. 
The people of Judah would come back to the land. They would even rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the wall and all these things. We read about this where? In Ezra and Nehemiah. But here's the kicker. The people of God would never possess a land as large as what is described in Obadiah. That is a dead giveaway. They would never possess a land like this. So it has to be talking about something else. Not just what occurred under Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the fate of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel was far less good than the people of Judah. Once the Assyrians wiped out Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom, they were scattered in such a way and foreigners settled their land in such a way that they never existed as, a, as one people the same way again. But the point of what we're talking about here, even as it pertains to Judah, is that the prophecy of Obadiah was not fulfilled in a temporal sense, in an earthly sense, in the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ. It was not. The people got a land, but not like this. The people were given some saviors who brought them peace and stability. True. But a few temporal saviors and a piece of land for a time is not the fulfillment of Obadiah 19 through 21. You can see that, just as I can see that. There must be something else. What is that? Well, an everlasting kingdom in and for his son has always been God's plan. From before the foundations of the world, his plan. He is accomplishing that in time and space. And he, through the prophets and the apostles, repeatedly reveals it to his people in Holy Scripture. He's revealing it, he's promising it here in Obadiah. Question we could ask. It's like, why does he keep revealing? Why does the Lord keep revealing this message? Why is it so repetitive in the pages of Scripture? Well, because it's what we need to know above all else. It's what the people of God have always needed to know above all else. That this is what the Lord is doing. It's because what God has done through Jesus Christ and what He has always planned to do through Him is the hope and peace of the saints. Always has been. Always will be. You see, there was a covenant made amongst the persons of the Godhead before the foundations of the world. Before time and space and the created order were a thing. The covenant was made primarily between the Father and the Son. And it concerned the redemption of a people. In this covenant, God the Father gave work to God the Son. Gave Him a mission, a charge. And the Son would accomplish this work. And in exchange for doing so, He would be resurrected and exalted. And He would inherit a people to enjoy this resurrected and glorified life with Him forever. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Listen as we consider the testimony 
of our God. Thinking about what he's been doing. The kingdom that is the Lord's that Obadiah and all the prophets and all the apostles bear witness to. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our final inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is what the Lord is doing. In Psalm 2, the Son, the Messiah, speaks and says these words, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Consider the words of Jesus himself. I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then there's the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays the last night he's on earth before he's crucified with his followers in the upper room. What does he say? Well, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that? The work that you gave me to do. What's the work that he comes talking about doing? When he's baptized by John, 
It's appropriate that we would do this, that all righteousness be fulfilled. When he begins to preach, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. When he says, like we just read, I came to lay my life down for the sheep. Nobody makes me do it. I do it of my own accord. This charge I've received from my father. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He set his face toward Jerusalem. This is why he came. That's the work he was given to do. And in exchange for that work, he would be resurrected. He would be exalted. And he would inherit a people who would enjoy a resurrected and glorified life with him forever. He goes on. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. This is the plan. Back to Obadiah 19. The Lord will gather his people from exile. He will bring them into the land that he's given them. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Hear the words of the prophet Ezekiel. And as you do, as you do, remember that Ezekiel is writing in exile to people who are in exile. Remember that. This is good that we would do this, beloved, so that we see how the scriptures hang together. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 15. You can turn if you want, mark it for later. The Lord will gather his people, he'll bring them into the land he's given them, the kingdom will be the Lord's. The word of the Lord came to me Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, all of the people of God. And join them together into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and will bring them into their own land. I will bring them from exile. I'll bring them back. They've been scattered. I'll search for them. Ezekiel 34, the Lord himself will search out his people. He'll go get them. He'll bring them back into their own land. Here we go. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. 
But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. This is new covenant language. Amen? My servant David shall be king over them. David's been dead for centuries when Ezekiel writes this. Don't forget that. It screams, Jesus. The billboard is flashing, right? My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Sounds just like Jeremiah when he talks about the new covenant. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Something far greater than a temporal king, a temporal savior, and a piece of land for a time. Forever they'll dwell there. And David, Jesus, forever will be their king. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And, they will, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The Lord's presence will be in the land with his people forevermore. Ezekiel goes on to write a vision of the land that the Lord will give to his people. He goes on to write of a city within that land. And he concludes his book, Ezekiel does. This is chapter 48 and verse 35. And he says, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. What better message could ever be written to exiles who have been hurled out of the land, away from the sanctuary of the Lord? The name of the city from that point forward will be, the Lord is there. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Remarkable how this hangs together. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that sound familiar? He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. All that the Father gives me will come to me, says Christ. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's that plan again. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is it, Jesus? 
that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. I should lose nothing of all the people that the Father has given me from before the foundations of the world, but I should raise them up on the last day. That's the will of the Father. For this is the will of my Father. He's going to double down. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. That's true. That's possible. Because all of the work that the Son came to do, in doing it, He earned salvation. Earned it. And then we are given it. We receive it by faith. We trust in Christ. And His work is counted to us. His obedience, His death under the law, the fulfillment of the penalty that lawbreakers deserve, all of that, resurrection life, because of what Christ, our representative, has accomplished. And now we receive it. And we know peace and we know rest. Jesus came and accomplished the work of salvation. He was, as the Father had said, He was resurrected and He was exalted. He will inherit us. May we know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And we will enjoy a resurrected and glorified life with Him forever. In the midst of injustice, suffering, pain, wrong, does the Lord see? Does He know? Does He care? Will He do anything? Yes, He will. Yes, He has. And one day we will say with all the redeemed, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Let's pray.